Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. And we've got something to talk about tonight. <gasps> what do we want talking about? I don't know, but we'll find out as soon as we listen to this promo from the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Hey there, Luxa here, host of Lux Cult, a podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and also discuss a variety of occult topics. Exploring the intersection of science, magic, art, and philosophy through the lens of chaos, it's occultism for everyone. Luxa Cult features interviews with badass authors, artists, and magicians of all walks and experience levels, as well as audiomantic nonsense, cut-up poetry, bibliomancy breaks, and so much more. Don't miss the special two-part episode where Dave and I talk about his path of druidry and go into some of the botany of the plants represented by the Oum alphabet. Also, hear Dave read a guided meditation for the Green Mushroom Project, which is a large-scale group working focused on building connection and regaining ground that you can be a part of. You can hear Lexicall on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in and join us for the ride. I love all the shows on the network. I do too. They're yeah. also entertaining and good. Very much so. And the people are amazing. So let's go ahead and get into this week's show, shall we? Yeah! Yeah! is Talking about people, I hear you whisper, you don't believe us, they've got experiments, kept undercover, you just ignore it, but we keep saying that monster's a little too loud, Nickel's got a little too close, it lasted a little too long. Maybe he'll see it. Something we don't talk in. Let's give him something to talk about. Let's give him something to talk about. Let's give him something to talk about. How a puff go over man cover up. I feel so foolish. I never noticed. They act so nervous. All of this really can't be It took a rumor To make me wonder 
I'm hoping that you feel the same way Now that we know it We've got to show it Don't get Let's give them something to talk about A little mystery to figure out Let's give them something to talk about How about the You have so much passion. I know. No rhythm and or vocal talents, but I've got passion. (laughs) (laughs) So in this episode, we're going to Montauk about a new radar at Montauk, Atlantis, Mars, pyramids, more synchronicities, sacred geometry, and the grid. Dun, dun. Our main subject in this episode will be the book published by Preston B. Nichols and Peter Moon titled Pyramids of Montauk Explorations in Consciousness. Consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. Which digs deeper into what many living around Montauk already suspected that this military base was once ground zero for one of the most secret projects. Secret projects. In U.S. history. Nichols writes about how he was the leader of the psychotronics movement throughout the 70s and 80s. He claimed agents of the government were utilizing electromagnetic radiation to transmit ideas directly into the heads of people. Nichols' followers who wore metal pots on their heads to block microwaves may very well be the subjects to which tinfoil hats were first attributed. Styrofoam helmets. helmets. (laughs) It's when the radiation isn't as strong, but you still need some protection. (laughs) In the prelude of Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness, it states, After the Second World War was taken a huge, yes, huge research project address to the invisibility experiments to go biophysically on the ground that had been conducted in 1943 above the ship USS Eldridge. This had the support of many groups and has become known as the Montauk Project and examined all the human biopsychological factors associated with invisibility and shifts in the space-time continuum. Thus, they form part of the base of the world formula and thus the generation of a virtual interactive reality, exactly this world in which we now live. The psychic psi abilities of many people were observed until they managed to get the time by means of the knowledge of their structure, even in the grip and influences and manipulations almost at will. Then bizarre experiments were conducted on the Air Force Base in Montauk Point, New York, and conducted through the first book of this series, The Montauk Project Experiments in Time. In 1992, Peter Moon tried to substantiate that such an ordinary project really existed. To his surprise, he found that powerful and irrefutable occult factors were behind the Montauk scenario. These adventures were recorded in Montauk Revisited Adventures in Synchronicity by Peston B. Nichols and Peter Moon. 
Pyramid of Montauk, Explorations of Consciousness, summarizes the events together in the first two books and then takes us on a trip even more spectacular. The discovery of the pyramid leads to an even more intensive investigation, which reveals the old links of Montauk to Egypt and its location as the gateway between dimensions. A new show of occultism and ancient history will make even the biggest skeptics take notice, unquote. So this is going to be even more spectacular than the first? Even more spectacular! (laughs) I just want to let y'all know that like with all of our alien or conspiracy topics, I'm not going to wear out words like allegedly, supposedly, or presumably. So just insert them yourselves wherever you feel they need to go. And if you're late to the party and haven't heard our first episode on the Montauk Project, please go to episode 127 of this podcast. If you haven't listened to part two, please go to episode 140. If you haven't heard three, go to 175. Part four is episode 192. And don't forget part five with episode 211. This is a multi-parter. Before we dig in, does everyone have their metal pots on? I'll get my styrofoam helmet. Squeak, squeak. Okay. Chapter one. Denny Colt, the musician, visited Montauk in the summer of 1993. She had been out of the country for a year away from her home on Long Island. During a tour to the Montauk Lighthouse, she noticed a huge, suspicious-looking radar screen and made a comment. Two other women informed her that they had been expelled by officials and told the area was all top secret now. Denny became suspicious and decided to dig deeper. She had not heard of the book, Montauk Project Experiments in Time, at this point. She took some photos of the radar to her friend Lori Saluzzi, who also just so happened to be good friends with Peter Moon. It's like six degrees of Peter Moon around here. (laughs) Peter finally met Denny Colt at one of his lectures, and she pressed Peter for a trip out to Montauk to see. Sure enough, when they got there one early afternoon, the radar was just west of the lighthouse, less than a half a kilometer away. Next to it was a big caravan and a generator. This was in the area Peter Moon and Preston knew had a secret underground bunker. Secret bunker! A guard was keeping them back, so they circled around the area to get a different vantage point. As they walked down the street, a huge flock of birds were resting on a high wire. Ninety percent of them turned their heads and looked one direction at the same time and froze. Birds aren't real. Peter and Denny began to shout and toss pebbles in an effort to scare them or get them to move, but they were just frozen there. Preston shot a video of them frozen and caught what happened next. The birds suddenly buzzed around in a frantic pattern. They flew in a circle, as if following a line. Birds aren't real. When they arrived at the new vantage point, about a hundred yards away from the site, two cars drove up to the plant. Six or seven people got out, appearing to be a group of engineers, possibly. Two of them went directly to the radar. Preston moved closer to try to speak with the men. They said they worked for the company Radar Cardian in the public relations department. The spokesman said the radar is being tested to see if it would be able to pick up small ships from this distance, 
and it would be used to catch small drug ships off the shore of America. Preston later would tell Peter that this was very sophisticated radar and would unlikely be used for such a purpose. When Peter got home and called one of his friends to tell him about it, he thought it was funny because Cardian was one of his clients. Six degrees. (laughs) After asking around, the friend found out that the PR thing was indeed a ruse. The radar had the capability to detect barium. At the time, it was a common tactic for spies to mix low-level radioactive fiber in the food of some countries, so these targets would show up on radar. Preston didn't think so. Uh, There were radars capable of seeing people and animals already at use by the defense industry. The PR man said it was a 3 gigahertz radar when it was actually a 6 gigahertz. The biggest inconsistency, though, was the radar was pointed at the ground. To the secret bunker. <laughs> at the library, they discovered Cardian had been acquired by Siemens <laughs> in the early 90s. Everything started fitting together now. Norman Scott, a lobbyist, which was nearing a documentary about Montauk, was led to Siemens through his research and suffered a mysterious heart condition. Seems the old relations of Germany might still be active with Montauk. Preston hired a pilot to fly over Camp Hero so he could videotape. While reviewing the film with a nuclear physicist they called Danny, Danny pointed out a huge circle south of the inner Montauk base and said, it could be a particle accelerator. Isn't that what they have in like Sweden or whatever? And maybe in Germany? Switzerland, yeah. Switzerland, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah. They have them all over the place. Hydron Collider. Mm-hmm. The following excerpt is from Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness. Quote, That would explain why on Montauk a new radar system was tried. Leaving aside Voitex monitoring and other esoteric activities, they had to be just connected to the particle accelerator in Montauk. A normal radar, they would have probably tested more near Syoset. Cardion, the radar, was obviously not what they were told. Disinformation was performed on at least two tracks. On the public one, it was told to chase drug ships. The second story was a bit more technical, but still flawed. They said that they would use barium to recognize people. If any of part of that was true information, and disinformation is always mixed with truths, if it is performed correctly, then it probably was the finding that that radar could detect barium. This supports the assertion, Danny, that the circle is a particle accelerator in Montauk. We did not have to try to convince him. He was sure of his judgment. And he was one of the few specialists in the field of particle accelerators. Seemed also to ourselves, but very convincing. We still do not know exactly what the barium is used for. It will certainly not be used to track military invaders, but it could help the whereabouts of people keep in mind, and this is speculation itself, to dock with their mental signature, unquote. Okay, me speaking from the future. 
<laughs> I like that. What, 30 years later after the publication of this? Yeah. Siemens is a German conglomerate that manufactures many things, but are the manufacturer of radio frequency identification chips, also known as RFID chips. I had a Siemens phone in like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So in 1996, the first patent for a batteryless RFID passive tag with limited interference was granted to David Everett, John Freck, Theodore Wright, and Kelly Rodriguez. The patent was filed on June 24, 1993 by Westinghouse Electronic Corporation, a nuclear energy provider. Westinghouse bought CBS in 1995. Westinghouse was renamed as CBS Corporation in 1997. Also in 1997, the Power Generation Business Unit, headquartered in Orlando, Florida, was sold to Siemens AG of Germany. Viacom bought CBS Corporation in 1999, after which they split into CBS Corporation and Viacom in 2006, merging together in 2019 as Viacom CBS. And in 2022, Viacom CBS changed its name to Paramount Global. So if you have the Paramount channel, you are contributing to the Montauk Project. (laughs) Woo! I'm doing something. (laughs) Fun fact. During the 20th century, Westinghouse engineers and scientists were granted more than 28,000 U.S. patents. That's the third most of any company. Wow. Now, if you remember, there was a fictitious name for a power company in these earlier episodes, called Western Electric. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually, their real name is supposed to be Westinghouse. Don't quote me on it. But I have a second fun fact. Probably a subsidiary of Westinghouse. Could be. Yeah. But I have a second fun fact. An RFDI chip is embedded in a device having a body that includes a low dielectric loss material, including at least one, of barium stannate, barium serrate, barium tungstate, and barium polybdate. So they were hunting for barium <laughs> on Montauk Island to create more. I don't know what they were doing, but that was just like a weird bunch of synchronicities that I had found just Google searching. Um, well, honestly, there's barium in cell phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so the next few chapters of the book are about legal proceedings for trespassing. Uh, This is when, this is, you remember when the officers approached them and said, you could be arrested for being here, and they're like, well, we're standing in the public park, and they just kept harassing them and Mm -hmm. harassing them, and it's the legal proceedings for that. So Um, It's also a look into land transfers for the Montauk area, so I kind of skipped all of it. Okay, Moon found a book in the reference department for Long Island, a thick book. The author's name was Wilson. The title was Historic Long Island by Rufus Rockwell Wilson. Wasn't Wilson one of the names of the people from last episode? It was. Uh, That was 
Marjorie Cameron's maiden name, the Wilson. Then there was also the Wilson brothers that worked with the Crowley family. Yeah, you're remembering. Um, It doesn't just all disappear. So this name came up. So he opened it to page 317. Found a picture captioned, The Pyramids, Dash Montauk. The pyramids measured about 20 feet, and in the background, two other pyramid-like hills could be seen. Moon looked through the whole book and couldn't find anything about these pyramids other than the photo. The book was published in 1911, and he promises to write more on it later. So we'll circle back. The next thing he discovered is the dialect of the Montauk natives had been lost. A report said that a George Pharaoh, the Sachem or chief, would have been the last person to speak it, and in 1798 had spoken in his native language to John Lyon Gardiner. There was a descendant of his by the name of Stephen Talkhouse Pharaoh, which spoke a quote-unquote ancient language. Fun fact, he was a performer at P.T. Barnum's act as, quote, king of the Montauks, unquote. Synchronicities, we covered the circus. Okay, during his childhood, he was hired as a servant by Colonel William Parsons. (laughs) Six degrees, I'm telling you. Okay, we live in a large town that is like this to where like everybody somehow knows somebody, but good Lord, okay. Okay, so the synchronicities were stacking up again. And Peter Moon says this was just the tip of the iceberg. Then to start with just the tip. <laughs> just to see how it feels. Yeah. Then Moon found Thomas Jefferson, former president of the United States, had been interested in saving the endangered language of the Montauks. Jefferson wrote that when he arrived, only three elderly women spoke the language, and he set to work putting together a dictionary and an alphabet. Moon thought this extremely odd until he remembered Jefferson was a Freemason. Jefferson would later claim he lost the main part of this dictionary to the Potomac River. Only a small part survived. Moon went to see a friend of his, and this is what he said, according to Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness. Quote, Finally, you come to the thing, the truth about Montauk, closer, he said. Then I told him what I had found out about Thomas Jefferson and his interest in the language of Montauks. He told me that the language of the Montauks was known as the Vril, an ancient Atlantean language. Characteristically said, this would be a later version of a much older language, the language of the angels and would have been called Enochish. Generally, Vril is understood as a kind of psychic energy. According to Madame Blavatsky, she called the Atlanteans Moshmak. This is a rough phonetic approach to the word Montauk. The earliest mention of Vril, which to me is known at the moment, could be found in Bulwer-Lytton's book, the coming race, which was later used as Nazi propaganda. Though we know the Anakish 
has its own grammar and syntax. It is still a hidden language, and you will and will probably only be very difficult to bring something about it in experience. Vril is said to have apparently been developed from the Enochian, but is even less accessible. Unquote. Now, Brit over at Primordia did an episode about Vril. Yeah. You remember that? And to call back to an earlier episode, this type of psychic energy was also called Orgone Energy by Dr. Reich and was used by Duncan for the Montauk Experiments. It's also called many different things by different spiritual traditions and mystery schools all across time in the world, like Chi, Ki, Prana, um, Odic Force, Nuivra, um, all kinds of stuff. And in this same conversation, Moon asked about the name Pharaoh. His friends said only two civilizations ever used the name Pharaoh, the Egyptians and the Atlanteans. Next, Moon called Madame X. You may remember Madame X from previous episodes. She was the one claiming that mystery schools have been observing the Montauk planetary energy point for some time. He told her about the pyramids, which were now gone from Montauk. She asked Moon, Where else do you know that there are pyramids? He responded, On Mars. Exactly. Madame X went on to tell him that Atlantis, Mars, and Montauk were all very closely related. What she described was how these venues, as well as other places, where there are pyramids and other geometric structures are part of a lattice structure. This ideal is not new, but most are difficult to understand in terms of function. Now, before we let Peter Moon try to explain this in his own words, Atlantis, whether or not it's real or fake, Plato did write about it. Right? Yes. So... Even if it was creative license on Plato's part, we're still going to have to look into what the meaning of it meant. Just as we look into the meaning of what, like, the underworld meant to the Egyptians. Yeah, or the Garden of Eden, or, yeah. Yeah, or what the Garden of Eden means uh, in those mythologies. Okay, first of all... <laughs> uh, I understand this one pretty well so far. Okay. I am totally blown away by the the synchronicities in it. But I think every episode gets me with the synchronicities. Yeah. I'm excited to learn more. <laughs> All right. So here's Peter Moon trying to explain the function of the grid. The easiest way for those who are not known yet of the ideas of this, of a grid, is to understand the matter that is the mythological equivalent of Atlas, the Greek titan who bears the earth on his shoulders. Atlas was the son of Uranus, god of the room or sky, and brother of Kronos, god of time. It is more than ironic that a map series is called Atlas. The story that he wears, the globe on his shoulders, is a metaphor for the idea that our planet is supported in space and time by a series of grid lines. The grid is the network of three-dimensional geometric shapes which serve as the skeletal structure of the planet, 
such as bones, which maintain the matter and may be considered. According to Greek mythology, Atlas was the father of the Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters, and which occur in the creation legends of the most primitive tribes. For example, many believe the Indians that are descended from the Pleiades. This is all important because it means that Atlas is older than the stars, and that the geometric grid system that supports the Earth expands into the solar system out, then in the galaxy and throughout the entire space and uh, time. One can get the lattice as the model for creation. It's a stellar or divine essence made use of to create a planet or anything else. Such a great creation must just be trapped at different points and is already a very complex ecosystem before the equation of biological life is attached. It's called a morphogenetic field because it is constantly rotating in different directions and changes constantly. Morph means change, and genetic refers to the fact that our universe as we know it is generated. Or wanting to trace this gigantic movement of existence is an extreme challenge. The Mayans were probably the most successful. Unfortunately, most studies on this area are not very clear and can request a clamoring amount of sense. While the Earth revolves around the Sun, the grid lines of the Earth move at different speeds, but they are all included at the end of the same system. From the human point of view, we can try to understand the system by at least two methods. The first is through the mathematics which would include a complete breakdown on the finer points of the grid. But this goes far beyond the scope of this work. The second method would be by compliance and resonance, which would certainly include synchronicity. This second method would also contain simple mathematical relationships, but would not go so far as to try to explain every last manifestation we will discuss later in the book a little closer to it. The fact that once existed pyramids at Montauk shows that the place had been recognized as a key point of the grid. This alone suggests a relationship. To Mars in Egypt, there is the legend also of the pyramids at the bottom of the Atlantic, where the sunken continent now rests. The name Atlantic comes from Atlas, presumably because the old Atlanteans used the energy grid of the Earth to drive their various vehicles. The Edgar Case material discussed in this topic, as well as the Atlantean culture in which Egypt settled. Basically, it is believed that everything that Egypt had to offer had come from Atlantis. Cairo, where the Great Pyramid is is 100 degrees away from Montauk when representing the Earth as a dodecahedron, a polyhedron with 12 pentagonal sites. It's a D12 if you do tabletop gaming. Then there is a direct purely geometrical correspondence. It may further interest that, on the same latitude as Montauk, is Olympus in Greece and the mythical city of Troy in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. 
Troy is located north of Cairo and was said to be at its peak when Atlantis was just lost, unquote. So the Earth isn't round or flat, but it's a D12. Mm-hmm. According to the model. Hmm. I, I, I agree with that more than I do that it's flat. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> we're not talking in yeah. the material sense. Yeah. We're talking in the model of Plato. Yeah. We'll get back into it later, but I want to call back to something from a previous episode in a previous Montauk book. Moon went to see someone familiar in Gaelic linguistics. They said Menentol, which is Gaelic, and Montauk, which is Native American, come from the same root and mean the same thing. He said they both trace back to Mer. This is associated with the sea, like mermaid, merfolk, uh, America. <laughs> America. <laughs> and it also means a circle of perpetual motion. Okay. Like a vortex through which creation can manifest and from which one can conjure. It should be noted that Monitu in the Algonquian languages refers to the life force, or as Rake called it, Oregon energy and shares the same roots as Montauk as well, spelled M-A-N-T-O-A-C. And this also refers to the gods that could shapeshift and travel through time. Moon continues in the book, Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness. Quote, The descendants of the Pharaoh family were apparently a big puzzle, and an important piece of the puzzle. I continued my search in the library trying to figure out how they arrived at that particular name. I found that with I found that white settlers, the natives often responded with glorious names like king in order to appease them. But in the case of the Montauks, this was not the case. There were no records that said was the Sockham Wyandect by the settlers as Pharaoh been crowned? And apparently he himself had not used that name. Later the name appeared in Instruments of Transfer. Its exact origins, for now anyway, is unknown. But from the history Montauk show us that it had there had been repeated disputes over land ownership in the context of the Pharaoh family. To my surprise, this applied also to the land that later became known as Camp Hero. It turns out that the Montauk Air Force Base was created on sacred Native American ground. This gave a whole situation a new direction, but there was another problem. The Supreme Court of the State of New York had declared, at the turn of the century, the Montauk Indians extinct. So, of course, I dealt more fully with this case and discovered human drama that the mystery around Montauk only deepened. Unquote. Dun, dun, dun. So, Moon went to the East Hampton Library to examine the court case from 1909 and 1910. Okay, I can't make much sense of this other than the plaintiffs were the tribe of Montauk represented by its chief Wyandict pharaoh, a descendant of the already mentioned chief Wyandict, indicted were James 
Ann Benson and Mary Benson as executor track grooves of the Arthur W. Benson, John J. Pierpont, and Henry R. Hort as executor and trustee of the Frank Sherman Benson, Mary Benson, the company Montauk, Montauk Dock and Improvement Company, Alfred W. Hoyt, the Montauk Extension Railroad Company, and the Long Island Railroad Company, and ultimately the court ruled the tribe extinct. So an article in the East Hampton Star has the points. Quote, Although the Indians had a legitimate constitutional claim on their side, but that a revision is unlikely because in other cases the land has always been attributed to the owners of East Hampton, unquote. So Moon met... I wonder if the Supreme Court's ruling on Indian land here recently would grant Montauk's their land back. It very well might. That would be amazing if it did. Yeah, it would, because then we could get on the land. Maybe. <laughs> but not if Montauk's are extinct. But they claimed them extinct so that they'd have no say on who had that land. Yeah. So therefore, they could sell it to all those different people. Yeah. Was the reasoning to declare it extinct. So if the tribe doesn't exist anymore, they aren't entitled to any land. Yeah. And I'm going to bet there are still Montauks running around. Oh, yeah. Moon, yeah. Moon met with Olive Pharaoh, who was the oldest of the Pharaoh family and lived on the east end of Long Island. She told Moon the court claimed the tribe was called extinct because no one had appeared for them. However, that was simply not true. And this also had something to do with how the descendants of the Pharaoh family and the Montauk tribe were considered extinct by the court because they had intermarried with African Americans and their bloodline wasn't 100% Montauk anymore. This was 1910. Oddly enough, Moon found another ruling from the 7th of April 1918 where a court order suggested the Montauk native descendants were white and still extinct. So they were named extinct because they had bred with African Americans, yet they are white, but they're still extinct. Yes. Now, I think this goes into the government wanted to keep this land for some yeah. reason. Yeah, the government stole that land. Yeah, because this yeah. is all Supreme Court ruling. Because like I'm saying, the Supreme Court just gave back all of Oklahoma's Native Americans their land. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that... Ex- <laughs> I don't know. I'd be interested to find out. Now, this whole chapter is a mess. You know, the copy I'm reading from has a lot of transcription errors from when it was transferred. And this legal language is hard to understand when it isn't full of errors, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, but that was kind of the gist I got out of it. Yeah. But it, it went into detail. It went into like different rulings and ways they, they could overcome it. And then laws that were actually put in place so they couldn't use those laws. And it was just this huge like legal mess of stuff. Um, I don't know if we have any Montauk listeners, like native Montauks. Or just, I guess, descendants of Native Montauks. Are you trying to get your land back? Because I would. Yeah. Although there's a monster on it now. 
Yeah. And who knows how much radiation under the ground. Yeah. Maybe you don't want it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're at chapter 10. A few kilometers southeast of the transmitter building is Turtle Bay a short distance from the Montauk Lighthouse. In the Montauk legends, the world started in Turtle Bay. This is a common motif across many American indigenous beliefs of a turtle as the source of the universe. Many also have stories where the earth is supported on the back of a turtle. When one looks deeper at this mythos, it is a metaphor for a deep principle. I don't do well with metaphors. Give it to me straight. (laughs) This is from Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness. Quote, To help you understand this metaphor, Amy, (laughs) I must first present the Meru Foundation, a research group which brings out lost knowledge again, that was available until now only by the initiated in the mystery schools. Among the most spectacular works of the Merrow Foundation is the decryption of the Hebrew alphabet. This began in 1968 when a man named Stan Tenen happened to be a Hebrew version of the first Moses and looked at the book. Stan could not read Hebrew, and the text for it made no sense. But thanks to his special talent in recognizing patterns, he saw that the sequence of the letters was very special. There was a kind of symmetrical relationship, but he has not risked, but he has not yet realized what. This resulted in a decade-long research for the answer. Um, and in the book there, there's the strung beads with the first letter of Genesis, right, which show the form when you assign the letters to each other. And that was from Stan Tenen, right? And after he had them, or and after he read every book he could find and tried different mathematical, mathematical techniques, Stan did the easiest thing he could think of. He took the first verse of the book of Moses and wrote the series after each letter to be a constricted ball and put this chain on a long circle until the matching letter beads were in line with each other. This resulted in a form that could be described as a two-dimensional pyramid. Are you following so far? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This suggests not only the sacred geometry of the pyramid, it also shows a possible synchronicity between the Hebrew alphabet and the sacred geometry. However, this was merely the first step in the brilliant discovery by Stan Tennant. Further experiments have shown compounds of the alphabet to other geometric shapes. And after the dissolution of the Tower of Babel, when they had the ability to speak the divine language, and it was lost, it was granted to them that they could no longer understand each other. And according to degenerate society, all this only tells us what every honest archaeologist knows long or the ancients knew more than we do today. What exactly they know will be examined in the remaining chapters. One should not forget that this discovery was triggered by a location at Turtle Cove, or Turtle Bay, at Montauk Point. 
unquote. Maybe that's what Crowley was doing there when he visited. Well, it makes so much sense that they would have much more knowledge than we have now because they, even now we all say things like, well, we couldn't even do that with the technology we have. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, well, then obviously they had better technology than we did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or a, a different way of doing it that yeah. we never thought of. So Montauk and its history for the majority of people is a big mystery. Its position as a gateway in the morphomagnetic field, uh, according to the various mystery schools, was never a secret. This helps to explain the journey of Thomas Jefferson, as well as the fascination of the place for its use in the Montauk Project. Activities and program carried out by the project were correct and aptly named a crime against humanity. But this could also be described as a crime against the grid. Against the grid? Mm Mm-hmm. Against the grid. I was going to sing a song, but I forgot all the words to the the real song. Oh. So. Against the grid. (laughs) That's all you get. We're older now and still running against the grid. (laughs) I know what you're talking about. So, quote, if we want the if if we want, we want the crack, the crack. <laughs> I want the crack, all the crack, not just some of it. If we want to crack what was created in Montauk, heal, then we must begin to reveal the secrets surrounding the Montauk. This is already done in part by the previously written books by us, but it also includes the subject matter of the mystery schools, which had only set all these events in motion. We cannot just blame the United States, whose officers are only on the surface of possible conspiracies. We cannot cover all the programs and teaching systems of the various mystery schools all over the world here. This would be a gigantic task. But we can begin to uncover some of the most important and significant points. Unquote. Let's look at the structure of the morphogenetic field through the development of the platonic solids. You already lost me. (laughs) According to Plato, there are five bodies of classical geometry. I'll compare these to polyhedral dice. The tetrahedron, the D4. The hexahedron, the D6. The octahedron, the D8. The decahedron, the D12, and the icosahedron, the D20. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is the point where Peter Moon is going to take you deeper into the understanding of the grid. Deeper. Deeper. Quote. To better understand the ideal of a grid... Imagine that you are a navigator on a ship on the high seas. The navigator must constantly keep in mind the orientation. This means that it determines the position of the vessel on the basis of fixed points such as rocks, mountains, or buoys. He uses a gyro which it, with which it finds its position in space. If no visible fixed points are present... He also uses the sextant and various celestial bodies. 
The ideal is to have reference points in space, the longitude and latitude, which he can see his cards are indeed an arbitrary system, but they are indispensable as a tool. Five platonic body. The five platonic bodies, clockwise, from top, are the hexahedron, the cube, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, the tetrahedron, and the icosahedron. These forms are all related to each other, since they can all be derived from the tetrahedron, the pyramid. The navigator attempts to determine where his ship is in relation to space and time. If we look at the morphogenetic field of the Earth, we are still dealing with the ideal of a reference system, but with the addition of the idea of consciousness. Every living thing must be located in a space and time reference system in order to survive. The whole ideal of honoring father and mother basically means to recognize its origin. It is a point of reference for time and space. Of course, there are infinitely many such points of reference. If we are to survive, we must, as good as we can, fit into a frame of reference. This includes the understanding of the whole universe and our own position with respect. The shamans of the Native Americans understood this. The shamans of the Native Americans understand this, at least in approach. They teach there are six directions, north, south, east, west, up, and down. These directions are the basis of the three-dimensional grid. If one moves away in one of these six directions, you will indeed stop somewhere in this grid, and as a random point in this position is fixed. If you then, at a point, imagine a ball that characterized all directions are indicated, this is the first act of consciousness, and is often referred to as a ball or the egg of creation. Kabbalists refer to it as sephirah, plural sephiroth, which also means ball. The second act of consciousness is to duplicate the newly created sphere. Then arises the shape of the fish bladder, the vaseca pisces. So the point, point A, the fish bladder itself is the intersection form, the two balls together. Okay, so this is like, where you have a symmetry chart, uh -huh. where one circle is encompassed over another circle, and then there's the oval in the middle. Okay. Okay. Okay, this form is also regarded as a fish, and thus as a symbol of Christ. You've seen this. It's the fish shape. Mm -hmm. That's the Vesica Pisces. They say that the Vesica Pisces contains all the wisdom of the universe partly because all creative things can be derived from it. When all the three-dimensional shapes of the side, from point A, considered, it looks like something like a UFO from above, assuming the spheres are transparent. The third act of creation is a third ball, and the result looks like this. In two dimensions, you can see very well that you can create equilateral triangles by connecting the various points of intersection. If you add another bullet <coughs> and cut it so, so that all the balls are close to a common center, 
a tetrahedron is created. The tetrahedron is therefore something special, because arising from its multiplication cube, octahedron, icosahedron, and dodecahedron, this is called the unfolding of the platonic solids. The platonic solids are defined as a series of exactly five in the three-dimensional geometry, mathematically possible bodies whose side lengths and angles are all equal, which the respective areas of the body all have the same shape and size. The five bodies were enumerated above. Any form of creation, including the biological, can be attributed to one of the five platonic solids. Though they were named after Plato, much of his information is learned from the mystery schools of Pythagoras. Pythagoras taught all aspects of geometry with special emphasis on their relation to consciousness. So the five platonic solids are essential to understanding of the grid and the entire human creation. Buckminster Fuller received academic recognition as he was able to prove that the whole universe is in any way a tetrahedra. Fuller had patented his work on the grid, and the Russians have bought the patent for its own use. Unfortunately, the work of Fuller is not shown in any kind of common sense and therefore remain largely unnoticed. But they say that his work contains the entire secrets of the universe. Some may know his patented geodesic dome, which is the most striking building in Disney's Epcot Center in Florida. It is based entirely of tetrahedra. The entire creation and evolution process can be viewed as an unfolding of the geometry, but also as an unfolding of consciousness, since consciousness has produced the first movement in space. If reflected self-conscious, one tries to locate in space and time, and therefore the six main directions experienced. This is just a brief overview of a very deep subject. When preparing, and, when preparing and looking like they develop from one another, the five platonic stolids with styrofoam balls and rods themselves, the whole thing is meant even better. The cassettes of Stan Tenen are a great help in this context. If you still want to go a step further, one can study the works of Buckminster Fuller, which are available in most libraries. Despite all the logic with which the grid is demonstrated, one can still ask how this all came about in the first place. Or was it a big bang? Many philosophies and religions have said that there was a void before the start. In this void was the potential for all things. And hardly the first act of consciousness was then done. And that's the even, where each feasible geometric compound was made. And the entire projection of creation happened. At the moment, we are somewhere in the middle of this process. So this is, kind of take a break here, this is the absolute imposing itself onto the void. And then, right? Mm -hmm. And then creating the one. And then from the one unfolds the two, unfolds the three, unfolds the floor, and put forth all of... Uh, Manifestation. Okay. Okay. And the entire project, quote, unquote. Nope. Okay, back to it. 
And the entire projection of creation happened. I already read that part. Okay, so the energy grid of the earth was formed with these geometric principles accordingly. The energy grid of the planet is determined by the unfolding of the platonic solids and provides a matrix of the form given by the lines. Now, if these sound energy lines meet and interact with each other, it gives rise to various mechanical processes. The result, for example, the meeting of two power lines at a crossing point of the network, a node. This is a standing wave, which manifests itself as either a welling up or a, or decongestion. A decongestion might result in a canyon, called a hole, or even a swirl, as in the Carbidus, a real sea swirl near Italy, which many a sailor was sucked in according to Greek mythology. A welling up gives perhaps a volcano, mountain ranges, or geysers. Welling up and fall often come together before and created and mutually reinforcing itself. Thus one, thus one finds, for example, in big mountains and huge caves. Men in Toll in England is an example of an ebbing of energy because it contains a hole. But at the same time, it is a perfectly shaped phallic rock which crosses over it, which indicates the rise of sources. Montauk was always described as a mountain. But there is also, but it, but there it also has a bottomless lake, and a very large conical tower rises off the coast, which in 1862 tore the whole of the great, of the ship Great Eastern. Also, there are huge underground caves. These precise locations of the swelling and deswelling, emperor were recorded and zoned accurately for the creation of artificial structures. Among them are many pyramid complexes. The great stone circles like Stonehenge or the alteration of natural structures to create holy sites or holy ground. Nor is it a coincidence that many of these places have been chosen as, has been chosen as tombs. The reason for this is that bones still contain the crystalline structure of the entity, which had served her and thus obtain a connection alive to the life of the information system, which is stored in the energy grid. This allows communication with the dead, and is therefore a good reason to protect the place, with superstitious fear and their contribution to preserve these places sacred. Montauk itself is full of old native bones, especially at the Montauk Manor around. I've heard stories that craftsmen had seized their work on blocks of flats in the area, as it was haunted there. The construction was never completed. Of course, the residents of Montauk's have the situation with the native spirits. Worse, they had the audacity to build the Montauk Parish Church with stones from the sacred Indian burial grounds decades ago. The church stands with these stones because even today, if you are brave enough, you can also participate in worship every Sunday. You have to just hope that the church will not collapse. <laughs> At crossing points such as Montauk, the energy can be tapped or introduced into the circular system of the earth. This at last happened between the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th of August, 2003 and then collapsed from sheer power to update the grid in places of power network, 
The power grid in New York and southeastern Canada. 50 million people had no electricity during this time. Interesting. (laughs) And we're coming up on another one this year. In 2023. All right, back to it. A man like Duncan Cameron. A man like Duncan Cameron, while an important intermediate intermediary intermediary link and intensive mental training and an esoteric technology he was able to tap into the heartbeat of mother earth he learned the energies along the grid lines know and could inject or remove information depending on what was required of him so thoughts could be transmitted to the masses or the entire consciousness of time were affected um, in parentheses here, it says that for such actions then occur mostly deja vu effects, which are the consequences slash interfaces of consciousness of time or time travel manipulations. Close parentheses. It was not accidental Duncan was chosen for this work. We have met the extraordinary synchronicity with the name Cameron. A little later in the book, I'll tell you how I discovered that his person and his physical body are connected in a breathtaking way with the grid. Unquote. As to who influenced the morphogenetic fields is studied in the science of morphic energy. This is part of the Aryan legacy of the quote, old wisdom and mystery schools. Unquote. It is through sacred geometry this symbolism is encoded, protected, and passed on to the initiates or seekers. These mystery schools have always been devoted to the study of consciousness and the nature of reality. Over time, mystery schools have split into polarized groups and at times fight with each other or criticize the other's methods. This has resulted in a wide variety of belief systems and religious edifice. Created mostly through powerful events such as visions, prophetic foresight, or something like the resurrection and ascension of Christ or other sun, S-U-N, gods. Needless to say, an incredible amount of dogma has emerged. What these miracles or prophecies mean for future, maintained only by faith and detailed teaching, strips away experience. People are not encouraged to discover the truth and learn. Instead, they may be led to believe those who want to achieve only good deeds are carried away by their own beliefs. They are encouraged to recruit others so that entire generations are born into an illusion of reality, having buttons and triggers for fear and control installed. Prophecies are designed to handle the directing of many people to take a particular creation of the reality that cannot be changed. There is no free will only destiny. The number of people joining the single belief system or a specific prediction comment much to the final result of the future. This power of thought feeds the grid. Therefore, to prevail in the end, the ones that support a prediction need to be the most numerous for their prophecy to fulfill. You see what I'm saying here? Mm-hmm. So with this information, it is made clear that we as individuals are absolutely able to feed the grid and thus determine the course of our own 
individual destiny. So this knowledge has opened the first door. There are many doors from here, and some more will be revealed. But over time, you will also find some on your own. Hell yeah. And this is from chapter 13 of Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness, titled The Morphogenetic Field. The idea that the Turtle Bay is the legendary origin of the universe fits very well to the fact that Montauk is a gateway to the vortex of creation itself. I have not spoken of the Hebrew alphabet, inherent symmetry, because I want you to convert to Judaism, but to show beyond doubt that the process of creation was the old enrolled in spirit and soul. The alphabets of Sanskrit, the Greek, and the Arab possess the divine symmetry also. And probably this applies even to many other ancient languages. The only reason why the Montauk Project as a book was successful is that the events that tried to make it are regarded as exceptional and therefore interesting. The whole thesis of the book suggests that humanity can generate their consciousness so that matter, energy, space, and time can be manipulated. In Montauk, the process of creation could be used controls, at least for a short time. The only reason why this might be noteworthy or interesting is that the consciousness of the society has been detached from the process of creation. If anyone still possesses these skills, no one would be interested. Of course, this means that there is a secret power in the universe which can accomplish such miracles and take hidden influence. Thus brings us to the area that is referred to in our society as a god. Since the beginning of history, people had different views about God, about how he looks, and whether he exists or not. Logically thinking, intelligent people can immediately see that the common denominator of what we normally call God, better than the creative principle of existence, can be described. No one has to believe in a bearded man in white robes to see, a fou- to see a flower bloom or the birth of a baby. These are creative processes and can be seen without rejection. Only when we associate these processes with divine beings with certain pr- properties, the probability is high that it caused social, quote, unrest and religious wars, unquote. The result of the divisive and polarized thoughts, building which have evolved over the millennia, is mainly the discrepancy about the nature of creation. If you know the secrets of creation, but do not want someone else to know this, then it would not be bad if you set among the people of different schools of thought and circulation, and so debate and controversy provoked. As long as you, discre- as long as you distract the people, They will never notice that there are secrets which they could trace that would be worth it. Of course, maintaining this construct will then hold soon around the clock on their toes, and the whole thing is getting more complicated, just like the situation on our planet today. I think it's very interesting that all these companies that were involved with this Montauk project are also involved with the entertainment industry. 
Yeah. CBS, Viacom, BET Networks, MTV, Nickelodeon, CMT, uh, TNN, all kinds of stuff they own. On the last episode, we traced back um, the company that made the... Um, the Orion Corporation? Yeah, the Orion Corporation and how now it's uh, owned by Amazon. Yeah. And it, and for a time, it was owned by Virgin Records. I mean, it's all stuff just to keep us distracted. Yeah. You know, that's pretty common among most conspiracies. Yeah. But in America, there was once a great controversy between the theory of creation and the theory of evolution. Once? I think it's still going on. <laughs> the creationists espoused God or goddess created man in the supernatural way with mud, air, water, dirt, sticks, rocks, etc. While the evolutionists espoused humans evolved from wildlife. Both theories contain real elements. Just not enough people stay interested and discuss them. But neither of these views includes what might be called the actual theory of creation and development. In all matter and in all organisms, there is a visible process and invisible processes. Some of these invisible processes can be observed via dissection or microscopic analysis. But no matter how close we look, there are still invisible processes. When we rely on our extrasensory perception through a model, we can perceive an incredible world rotating and interacting through the geometric patterns, which can all be attributed to the five platonic solids we discussed earlier. It is the development and interaction of these shapes which makes up sacred geometry. Through its lens, we see the correspondence of the laws of physics, atoms, molecules, Snowflakes, flowers, crystals, all develop according to their precise geometric conclusion between players, which results in varying degrees of harmony. Viewing the periodic table of chemistry, we see the mathematical progression very well. Biology is also based upon geometric shapes and spirals, for example, DNA strands which correspond to the five platonic solids, or can be derived from them. Entire books are written on sacred geometry, and its corresponding mechanism is infinitely varied. But we don't need to go very deep into it to recognize the functional process and see that it governs and is governed by various forms. Morphology is a branch of biology, which studies the forms and structures of plant and animal life. The term morphology was coined by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who was the spiritual mentor of Rudolf Steiner. Morphology also relates to the study of form and structure of earth, suggesting a relationship between the biological and the purely physical aspect of being. When the earth finally moved around the sun, they had already found their physical shape and characteristics, partly based on the various other bodies. Even on its own orbit, its rotation was from a cosmic equation. There is also internal processes that work in the structure of the Earth's core, and this has to do with the iteration of geometric patterns and the list of chaos as well. Ages ago, 
Lichens and plankton began to evolve into higher forms of life. They used the four alchemical elements of air, fire, water, and earth. The consciousness of primitive life was instinctively aligned with the natural geometric or grid patterns. The lines of the grid serve as paths to and from the creative process we call life. These pathways are the entire ecostructure and is called the morphogenetic field. This could be understood as a kind of network guided through changes and evolutionary programs. We see this function even in everyday life. We may be unaware of it, as it is in ordinary mundane things like fashion or social behavior. But many of the indefinite and and indefinable feelings in our lives can be attributed to the morphogenetic field. Migratory birds, animal behavior, things like that are all based on the same grid. Anyone that works towards it can sense this grid. And Peter Moon comments, quote, In recent years in which the people had focused on environmental crisis, much panic has been fed into the grid. Some want us to believe that our earth is directly threatened by the destruction, by the greenhouse effect or the like. Others want us to think that environmentalists have their own corrupt and sinister goals. We are all part of this group consciousness, and I have therefore taken up environmental issue because it is probably in one way or another a way to play on strong feelings. So they can learn the, quote, pulse of the field, unquote, and the environmental issues. Different sides have different goals and would like to make you believe different things. The greatest danger for the personal or general environment, however, is the lack of accurate information. As primitive life forms like lichens, algae, and fungi developed, they sent different waves, frequencies, and electromagnetic oscillations to interact with other elements and forms. All the different forms of life have one thing in common. The electromagnetic reason code that we know is life. This energy is interchangeable between species and the grid itself. The grid could be thought of like a computer memory, if you like that idea. Normal observation of evolution and life show us that the programs evolved. In other words, we are all connected to each other and to everything. Another way to think of this grid or the morphogenetic field is through the theories of Carl Jung and many others as the collective unconscious. Thoughts are the reinforced responses or actions of various energy bodies that make up an individual. They are, according to most mystery schools, comprised of the vital or physical body, the emotional body, the astral body, the mental body, and the subtle energy light body. These inhabit the same space as the physical body, but have vastly different senses, perceptions, and ways of interacting and communicating. When thoughts arise, we are first when when thoughts arise, they are first processed as disturbances in the subtle fields. The emotional body adds these together in one image, which can be expressed as coarse material language. This is one of the reasons things can be sensed between species connected to this grid, even if there is a language barrier. 
People can also be fed or pick up from the collective unconscious the same habits, ideas, fears, patterns, or ways of speaking, and all other sorts of information. And this, this chapter 13, it ends, quote, All this information leads to an interesting question. Who programmed the evolution of the computer? And who feeds the morphogenetic field? Before we investigate this further, let's look once again at the floppy closer to what we use to write the program. Duncan Duncan Cameron, Cameron. unquote. (laughs) And chapter 14, the pharaohs of Scotland, (laughs) begins, quote, As Duncan Cameron worked in the Montauk chair, he sat near one of the arbitrary meridians, as they are characterized on our normal maps of the worlds. The 72 degrees west of the principal meridian of Greenwich, England is located. If one follows this meridian to the south, he crosses the Atlantic Ocean on the sunken ruins of Atlantis, which are clearly visible in the Caribbean islands. This meridian passes through the islands of Hispaniola, which is known for its voodoo culture, and they continue to Machu Picchu, the sacred city of the Incas. There he set north of Atlantis and worked on sacred ground of Native Americans and and as close to the bone as the pharaoh family of Montauk. The royal heritage of his family dates back too far and that we could pursue it in our usual historiography, but it points directly to the south, to the lost continent of Atlantis, Okay, Duncan's task was entangled with the energies of the grid, which the old Pharaoh family had guarded. Duncan had the perfect access to the energies of the ancient Pharaohs because his own lineage dates back to the Pharaohs of Egypt which had come, at least according to Edward Case and some others, from Atlantis. This all came to light for Peter Moon after seeing the name Duncan Cameron in the Aleister Crowley Confessions. On page 361, Crowley mentions Ludovic Cameron, also known as Ducam or Duncan, who wanted a resurgent of the Celtic nations. On page 366, he quotes from Macbeth, Wake, Duncan, with your knocking. I wanted you canst it. Moon received a call from John Singer, and John was telling him about the book Macbeth, High King of Scotland, by Peter Ellis. It's been said the Celts had their origin in India and immigrated under the leadership of Neil to Egypt. Neil married the daughter of Pharaoh Scotta, and they had a son named Guidehill Glass, G-A-I-D-H-E-A-L Glass. Sounds good to me. This pharaoh was Kinthras, also identified more commonly as Ramses II. It's pretty common for these Egyptian pharaohs to have like five or six names. And because of the persecution of the Jews during the Passover festivals, the Celts had to leave Egypt. They went to Palestine and North Africa, then to Spain, and finally on to Ireland. They named Scotland after Pharaoh Scotta. When Macbeth was associated with the Pharaoh of Egypt, Peter noticed the first King Duncan. 
When Moon studied the secondary literature on Macbeth, he saw that Shakespeare had written a fictional and dramatic representation of the murder of King Duncan by a general named Macbeth. Mm. Quote, It's probably best piece Macbeth seems Shakespeare for King James written to have said to have been an expert on witchcraft of Scotland. The historical characters Macbeth and King Duncan were first cousins and were both influenced by the witches of the time. The land of the liches was the the land of the witches was the Isle of Skye. Historical King Duncan was of great kindness and punished anyone. His warmth, however, was exploited, and thieves roamed, which led to a wide social chaos. Macbeth was Duncan's general. He was successful and quick with his sword. As a Viking fleet from Norway attacked Scotland, and Duncan drove into a corner, the king sent a secret message to Macbeth, who rushed him to the side, who rushed to his side in full-time work, playing of beating the Vikings and drove them from Scotland. As Macbeth realized under the influence of certain witches that he had the potential to exercise power, he killed his cousin and took over the kingdom. He was a skilled ruler, and he managed the crime that had taken under Duncan's government so out of hand. Unfortunately, Macbeth suffered the fate of many tyrants. He could not trust anyone, and nobody trusted him. So when Moon told Preston Nichols, this, um, Preston shot back the original name of King Duncan, Alexander Duncan Cameron. Duncan Cameron was of the lineages of those with pharaonic heritage of the Scots. Working in the area of the pharaonic heritage of the Montauks on the large central intersection of time, we know as Montauk Point. The genetic Duncan's vehicle was exploited and abused by those in charge of the Montauk project. It was used to tap into the knowledge and energies of the leaders of antiquity. The abuse came about because the guardians of this access point of the grid had been chased away and banished and made, quote-unquote, extinct. When the pharaohs stood as the guardians of ancient knowledge, they moved through the grid. In Egypt, the pharaoh was defined as the unifier of the upper and lower Nile, which is also symbolic of the union between the upper and lower triangle on Solomon's steel or the Star of David, as it has came to be called. The upper triangle symbolizes the higher above energies and the esoteric world. The lower triangle represents the exoteric world, the outward manifestations, and all worldly areas of the earth. The concept of Pharaoh is that it is simultaneously a conscious entity which works with the energies of the lower window, to the upper window's guide and instruction. Part of the task of the pharaoh who stood with both worlds was to interpret what information should be placed in the outer world of society in order to enable evolution to reach divine manifestation. The pharaoh was able to compensate for the esoteric with the exoteric, in other words, and filled the morphogenetic field with information. 
<coughs> the mystery schools went after their own goals after they had been involved in countless machinations. Uh, they have access to the Pharaoh because in him the symbolic string struggle for the evolution reached its peak. This is an excerpt from, Mon- from Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness. This included the battle between good and evil, which allows the development process only after the opinion of many philosophers. Because evil can neither be denied nor eliminated, it must be balanced, and at that point engages the mystery schools. The balance of evil for the structure of the universe is of fundamental importance. Pharaoh's line suffered with Moses, an Egyptian high priest who was prepared for the office and had its worst setback. Moses had directly caused the downfall of Egypt. When he organized the exodus, when the when he organized the exodus and the Arcadian rod, a magical technical tool of Atlantis fled. Moses renounced his Egyptian divinity. That was for the priesthood a big dilemma because his school was the last at that time which had been initiated into the magic. Since that time, the role of the pharaoh had been dispersed among various secret sects. Sex, and all of which complete for power and influence. The traditional role of the pharaohs lost the general population and the degradation of this institution. It has been dramatically illustrated by the plight of the Montauk natives in recent times. The word pharaoh itself means big house. When broke down further etymologically, one discovers that the word for great, is magos and maz, derived from the Greek and Persian words, which are both magic. The word house comes from the Indo-European word ski or ku, which means hide. When we add all this translated together, the word pharaoh is magical hiding place. And this fits so well exactly in our puzzle. While the pharaoh represented the magic hiding in human form, the Great Pyramid was the physical representation of magic. These pyramids shaped like the upper half of an octahedron. The D8, right? But many still do not know that the inverted pyramid exists among them. The top pyramid is known as the antechamber and depicts the creation, while the inverted pyramid as the back chamber is considered the represent is considered and represented the destruction this results in a white hole when a black hole white hole effect together these two pyramids form an octahedron which has exactly the same shape as the delta t antenna described in montauk project the octahedron is a basic form of the structure of ergenernitis if you can think of two interpenetrating tetrahedra, which are inscribed the globe, then sits in the middle of a constantly rotating octahedron. You can now change the space and time itself by sending waves to the octagonal shape of this field. When you consider that there are geometric grid structures in the Earth that constantly rotate, 
it is easy to understand that the octahedron rotates in the same. One must remember that particles are not continuous in space and time. They appear and disappear, but our perception is in sync to it, like watching a movie, so that the particles appear solid and unmoving. The particles themselves are created by electromagnetic vibrations, which act by the octahedron as a conductor. One can give an idea by building a small octahedron and imagine that in his own frame of reference and within the boundary, his dimension exists. Then turn it 90 degrees about a transverse axis and count the number of points that could absorb vibrations. One can find 12 of them before the octahedron is back in its initial position. If you turn the octahedron in the opposite direction, again, you obtain 12 points, which gives a total of 24 potential realities. And when rotating the octahedron about its vertical axis, and to rotate it, the number of possible realities rises to 8. Each rotation of the original octahedron results in 12 different realities. The number 12 is important here because it is a sacred number. It is also encountered in the 12 months of the year, the 12 signs of the zodiac, the 12 apostles of Christ, and so on. The most direct representation of the 12 as a sacred number is the description of a sphere with the maximum number of equal-sized balls. It will be found that exactly 12 balls surround the one. It follows naturally that the 13 must be a holy number. This is that um, flower of life I showed you, and the seed of life and things like that. And we all know that this number is burdened by much superstition. There are 13 members in a cavern. 13 people attended the Last Supper when one counts Christ. And in the lunar calendar, there are 13 months. The 13 is a prime number. And she was already sacred in prehistoric times. So lucky number two. (laughs) In the above example, we have demonstrated 12 realities around a central focus. The example is, of course, an extreme simplification of the whole process, but it gives us a very general idea of the way the geometry is coupled to the various realities. If the symmetry of the reality you look at is understood that the magical arts to substantiate certain geometric principles, unfortunately, you will hardly find witches and astrologers who really understand these principles, and yet these are their actual livelihood. As mentioned elsewhere, the knowledge has been taken away and hidden. What we call the Great Pyramid of Giza is the top half of an octahedron, which has been built to represent the earth grid and thus create a potential interface to other realities. Another oddity is that the Egyptians have recorded almost every possible description of their life, but not who had built the pyramids and why. If the builder investigated emphatically represent such mundane aspects of how the Greeks washed, but one would assume that they would also let us know why and how they had created the pyramids. 
That was a secret that was only passed on to the initiates of the mystery schools. But if we understanding the working principle of the octahedron as described above, we are already closer to the understanding of the Great Pyramid as a good piece. Considering the realities that consider realities that have been addressed in the above example, then one begins to understand that the morphogenetic field is able to communicate with the different realities and not exclusive part of our earth reality. The pyramid was a pass gate, the threshold to these other worlds and to the information in the grid, itself the great pyramid, so that was a magical hiding place and the pharaoh of personalized representations of the secret, since all knowledge is potential power. It was his job as a guard to maintain the balance between the higher and the lower worlds. Of course, the the pharaoh had human form. However, there was another being with a much more important task for the course of evolution, and this lived in the Great Pyramid itself, unquote. You know, there's a lot to that. I remember in the last book it was saying that how the Catholic Church had got out of hand when, like, mm-hmm. the evil uh, came about in it through, like, the Inquisition and stuff, and the Antichrist energy had to be brought in in order to uh, take away their power and stuff in order to maintain the balance between, you know, upper and lower worlds. Um, most traditions have fought over this. Mm, oh, yeah. Where their power comes from above or below. Um, on the pyramids. Yeah. Is there a upside down pyramid underneath it? Or is it just... There's one inside it. There's one inside it? Okay. Yeah. There's like one inside it. And then there's also like plates above it. At least from the um, scans, like the x-ray scans they've done of it and stuff. Okay. I just was wondering if they've ever tried to excavate anything underneath them. I if that's too dangerous. I don't know. I think I don't even know if they've even tried to do X-rays of down there or any kind of like what seismic seismographs. Uh, yeah, stuff. seismographs. Hmm. Huh. I'm gonna look on my handy dandy notebook. digital notebook. Uh, Ground penetrating radar. Yeah. Ground penetrating. Radar under great pyramids. There's definitely something under there. Yeah. I knew there was something down there that comes from the great hole all the way down to it. But I don't know if it's pyramid shaped. Um... So, chapter 16 is not very long, so I'm just going to read it. And this is Tahuti. Tahuti! I think. Tahuti sounds good, rather than Tahuti. Tahuti, which is also known as the Guardian of the Threshold, was a key figure in the Egyptians' pantheon and should seem to have lived in the Great Pyramid. He is usually portrayed as an ibis, but also as a dog or a monkey. I like monkeys. Tahuti was the god of wisdom, knowledge, and magic. 
He also invented the numbers and was considered to be the scribe of the gods. The Greeks called him Toth, but identified him as Hermes. The Romans called him Mercury. The Hebrews, Enoch. What we have here is very interesting. Tehuti to have lived not only in the Great Pyramid, he should also have been their builders. Of course, this does not mean he would have dragged stones or supervised an overseer with a helmet of the workers. As a scribe of the gods absorbed Tehuti, all existing knowledge and writing software, to use some computer jargon, and according to the various factors of evolution, he was a filter through which all of the different information from the morphogenetic grid ran and could. To once again use a computer terminus, are described as a system analyst. <laughs> the function of Tahuti and its role is in the creation itself goes much deeper. In John's Gospel is, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, unquote. The word they say means the Logos or the divine principle, or the character of being. Have you heard about the word? <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, oh, well, oh, bird, 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 bird's the word. <laughs> okay, so etymologically means word is a verb, an activity or a verb. In other words, <laughs> the first action in the universe was a verb or an activity. I'm going to word today. We can call this the cause or whatever we want. Uh, So time out here. Um, I think it's Buddhist. The first word was um. It's not so much. It's the vibration. Um, or was it um? Well, it doesn't matter. It's about (laughs) the vibration. Chad got it. (laughs) It's the vibration of the absolute superimposing on the void and sending everything else vibrating and colliding into yeah. each other is kind of what it is. Um, well, where was I? Okay. And this cause could create something out of nothing. Soon it developed into a ball, as described in an earlier chapter. And a few steps later, it was made into a tetrahedron. As the god of numbers and geometry, Tehuti is attributed to the creation of the Tetrahedron, and thus the pyramid. He built the Great Pyramid in order to interact with the earth grid in resonance, and an attempt to create himself a residence. His task was to act as a bridge between this dimension and the other worlds. So, Tehuti was not just involved in the process of creation. He held in his writings also the process and the knowledge firmly that went with it. During the historical period, this information had been allocated mainly to the various secret societies of civilization. And another great mystery of the Tehuti as a method of tetragrammaton is known, from which you have may have already heard. It is mentioned in the Bible and in the dictionary but a complete understanding of the term is intentionally covered up. Books on witchcraft and secret societies sometimes teach a part of the Tetragrammaton, while they mention that it was top secret, that no one can talk about it. 
and it can only get through a long process of inauguration. So about the use of the word, a lot of hocus pocus has emerged. <laughs> hocus pocus, huh? Hocus pocus. I'll get into that sometime later. It, it, it ties back to Scotland and a magical ruler of Scotland named Ocus Pocus. And that's where we get the, the word hocus pocus. I'm not even reading from the book anymore, so let's see. <clears throat> okay, so Peter Moon says, Tetragrammaton is specified only when the four consonants of the Hebrew name for God, depending on the, tra- on the translation. This is either J-H-V-H, Y-H-V-H, or Y-H-W-H. If you add the vowels, it is Yah, H, or Yehovah, H, which most recognize as the same. But, if anything, very few understand the clergy uh, and what this concept really means. Alistair Crowley recognized the definition just just mentioned, adding that the four letters iodine, he, va, and he, correspond to the four elements of fire, water, air, and earth. Okay, now I'm going to take a time out here. E, va, he is also the name of Eve from the Garden of Eden, right? Oh, yeah. Interesting, huh? All right, back to the book. Crowley also explained that the four letters are symbolic of the father or the first principle, from which the mother or the feminine or negative principles arises. Okay, now not negative as in good or bad, but negative as in battery terminus or or electricity. You got a positive current, you have a negative current. Mm-hmm. Okay. And their union brings forth the sun her heirs, also a twin daughter, is the end product. It is the duty of the father to his daughter to be his bride so she can take over the role of her mother. Then the daughter embraces the father and reunites the forces of the original all-father again. This is not presented as incestuous right, but as a magical principle, which is the basis of all creation. Crowley would have had more to say, but he let the cat out of the bag. Of course, there is a myriad of other ways to understand this formula and to summon her or to conjure the great secret of the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. Uh, And, I mean, somewhere this may have been printed. Hardly discoverable. It also has to do with the etymology of the word. The first five letters of the word form tetra, meaning four. So here comes the tetrahedron, back to the uh, previous note. In addition, can be attributed tetraphonom or tort, which means turning or twisting. This is reminiscent of the rotating tetrahedron, as adding act the meaning of grammaton, which refers to a piece of writing, especially on letters. This brings us to the work of Stan Tenen and to the fact that the Hebrew letters are formed by quote-unquote fire in the tetrahedron. Of course, the four letters of the tetrahedron, iodine, he, va, he, 
Many cultists are aware, but they do not connect to the tetrahedron, the four peaks corresponding to fire, water, air, earth. And if they understand the principle, they say definitely not too much. It is the idea that the tetrahedron is fundamental to the emergence of creation, underline not enough. This is also the reason why I took the opportunity to express different views on this topic. As I said, all forms can be developed from the tetrahedron. Through a process known as tetracking process, in which one uh, over in which one over which desired form whatsoever shall tetrahedra can be seen in almost every form of creation. The DNA helix is a primordial seed of life and can be represented by tetracking in the simplest way. If you put 33 tetrahedra side by side, it creates a spiral or helix. When these spirals are halved from 33 tetrahedra along the axis, it results in two spirals, which are the double helix of the DNA accurately. Now, the number of solid geometric servant, or surfaces on the two spirals is then 666. Six, six. And that's why Crowley and others have the 666 six, six as used in the Bible as a number of people. It is encoded right in our DNA. This is also the right time to mention that there is correspondence of the number 666 in the periodic table in chemistry. This is due to the carbon, the element with the number 12. All life on earth is based on carbon. And since the carbon in all living things is conspicuously present, it has six electrons, six protons, and six neutrons. Again, six, six, six. The number of the beast. Crowley not only had the significance of the number 666, was clearly aware that he was also a patron of the Tehuti and devoted most of his later years of the completion of one of his better books, The Book of Toth. The Book of Toth. The Book of Toth. This is one of the most important works on the tarot. The word tarot itself is also written T-A-R-O. And here it gets interesting. Occultists say tarot comes from rota, which means wheel. Uh, this resulted in the word rotation. The usual etymology leads tarot to tort. And that means, you know, turning and twisting. So immersed in the study of sacred informations, not only the tetrahedron again and again, but also the ideal of rotation, which is just as important. And the last chapter was indeed shown how reality is manifested by the rotation of the octahedron through the various dimensions. When Crowley and Montauk left its trace, so you can say the name of Tehuti, the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, has a Tehuti box which holds its meetings in Montauk. The head of the OTO has also told me that he had the book Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword by Jack Parsons during a visit to his Montauk brothers edited. One may say here without exaggeration that endless and appear anywhere such correspondences. 
Tahuti So is a god, or a creative function of the universe, in which all sacred knowledge is stored. He existed since the beginning and has since officiated as the god of learning. Anyone who is willing to undergo the necessary initiations can tap into the knowledge of the Tahuti. Oh, I guess that's not how you... The knowledge of Toth, the knowledge of Hermes, knowledge of Mercury. I mean, it goes on and on, the list of correspondence uh, and comparisons. Uh, But anyway, back to the book. Since he lives in the pyramid, in the transit station to the fourth dimension, he can give us a way out of the local area to show. Unfortunately, these approaches have been throughout history either blocked or abandoned, or they are closely guarded by the various mystery schools and priesthoods. Such a veil was created to penetrate the almost impossible, only the best adepts in the universe to make it. Of course, this has to do with the survival of the fittest and the inevitable death of those who cannot adapt. In the preceding chapter it was said that the pharaoh would look through the upper window while he maintains contact with the lower window of being. When a pharaoh of ancient times through the upper window went, you could say he's gone through, quote, through the veil, unquote, and be immersed in the time gates of the ancient knowledge. In modern times, a few people of the existence of the veil is even aware, and of how he is to penetrate it, much less. This was only a privileged few reserved. The mystery schools of ancient Egypt had taught these secrets. Some have already been aired in this book. Other parts of the ancient and protected knowledge, but had to do with a compound, which we have already encountered in this book, with the planet Mars. And that's the name of the old city, Al-Kaira, Cairo, which means Mars. And one should not ignore it. In the next chapter, we will look at the ancient history of the red planet closer. Unquote. And that's where we'll pick back up for episode seven of the Montauk Project. We get to go to Mars next. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if it'll make more sense there. <laughs> it'll probably make more sense on the listen back. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm it sure does. as I process. It'll make more sense, and yeah, then I'll listen back to it and be like, oh, okay. Because I have probably four levels of understanding with this. First is reading it, and then writing it, and then reading it aloud, and then listening to it. (laughs) And then I finally kind of get a grasp of what a lot of it is. It started losing me a little bit with all the hedrons and dedrons and bedrons and all that, but... Is interesting. Pretty much it's pyramids and pyramids stacked on other pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what episode it was on. We were talking about the Sill of Solomon as a 3D shape. Yeah. Was it in the Montauk Project? Or I was think it on so, something else? I think it was. Okay. And I happen to have a stone over there that's carved into that. Oh, very cool. I um was meaning to listen to our last episode on it kind of get it fresh in my mind but i last i didn't alas i can tell my brain is fried (laughs) (laughs) 
It needs to decompress. I told you to put a metal pot on your head. (laughs) I forgot. You never do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know as soon as I listen back when I do the editing, I'm going to be like, oh, I get it. Right now, my brain just... Every Montauk Project episode, I have to go back and listen to. Yeah. Just so I understand it. Now, there's a reason I spread these out. And it's because... Sometimes it takes months of even thinking about it subconsciously to be like, oh, okay. Now I see. But thank you, everybody, for listening. We will come at you again with another episode next week. I don't know what next. Oh, I do know what it's going to be about. I'm doing next week's episode. You are. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, everybody. Oh. (laughs) That's not nice. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like us, follow us, and all that stuff on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at UMP Normalcy. Also, check us out on Patreon. Um, we're going to have some awesome pre-game stuff going on. We've The last couple ones, we've played games. And we'll see how that continues to go. Come up with different ideas for each one. Basically, it's just about an hour that we record before we start recording the episodes. We just kind of hang out and talk or play games or whatnot. Also, don't forget to check out Parabox Monthly and links in the description. Use that link and promo code Paranormalcy at checkout to get 10% off your first order. And you'll receive your monthly Paranormal t-shirt sent to your door. Also... Check out the Etsy page for me, Sweet Magic by Amy. And also we have the link for Raven's Last Oath, a gaming community for those who like positive, fun, interactive gameplay. It is in remembrance of Eli, our missed co-host, brother, and friend. And all that fun stuff and links for all that stuff is also in our description of this show. And I think that's going to do it for tonight. So until next time. Keep digging. Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com. 